Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Inlet Law Center here in sunny downtown Santa Monica, where it's going to be 75 degrees today. Um, it's pretty sweet. And uh, as usual, you can check us out on the web at internetlawcenter.net. But we're broadcasting today. We have uh, another show, number 289, on how to tame tech giants. And we have Open Market Institute's Kevin Carty with us. And we're going to talk about the concentration of power that has come with some of the leading tech companies, um, ranging from Amazon, Apple, um, Google, Facebook, and some even say Netflix. So um, without further ado, Kevin, are you with us? I am right here. Thanks for having me on, Bennett. Thank you for joining us. And as I said, Kevin's with the Open Market Institute, and we have show notes that describe the issue as well as Kevin's background on the show notes. In addition, uh, in the show notes, there's a link to uh, Antitrust and the Tech Giants, a reader that have excerpts of some of the literature on this area if you want to bone up on it um, after the show. Um, but, Kevin, thank you for joining us. And, and so I guess when we talk about these tech giants and the, the recent um, resurgence of popularity of antitrust or antitrust as a remedy for tech giants, um, I guess, how is it that you came to this issue? So the Open Markets Institute, which is led by my boss, Barry Lynn, uh, has been working on this uh, for a while now. Barry wrote his first book on this issue back in 2009. Um, but I, And so he's been working on this for, for quite a little bit. And, you know, say back in 2009, while our biggest, you know, his biggest concerns were companies like, say, Walmart, for instance, large large uh, national change. Today, some of our biggest concerns are these big new tech companies. And I became interested in this work um, as a tech policy reporter uh, for Morning Consult, which is a small media company in Washington, D.C. And uh, I worked there before I, I came to this job covering tech policy in uh, D.C. And at that time and, and since then, there was a, a you know, just the, the start of a, of a growing backlash against the biggest tech companies. So, you know, while a lot of us were very excited by the rise of new technologies like social media and, you know, in, in new areas like artificial intelligence or machine learning or self-driving cars, we found these things exciting. I would say that, that a lot of us were, you know, this being tech reporters, were becoming more and more critical and skeptical of the, the big companies that, that were really influencing the development of these technologies. And since then, that backlash has really grown. Um, but I'd say I really started looking at this back into back in uh, 2015 was when I really started thinking about how we're, we were becoming more critical and more skeptical of these companies. And it's been a big focus of mine and, and ours at Open Market. So, and that's an important question, these companies. Who, who do you kind of include in this kind of panoply of, of giants that really deserve additional focus? Well, we, we mostly focus on the U.S. context. So I think, you know, we should think of that as that should be a, a caveat to, to start with. Is that mm -hmm. We're mostly talking about U.S. companies here. But the three biggest 
I think, uh, you know, pretty clearly are Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Um, right. Apple is, is, is also very popular, and I would say that is it a close third. But Google, Facebook, and Amazon really are the, the three most powerful tech companies in the world right now, and they really dominate a lot of the sectors that we focus on. I've seen Netflix sort of thrown in, and I'm not sure if it's it's a substantive or a stylistic, because if you throw Netflix in, you have the acronym FANG. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. It is it is helpful to have those acronyms. I also heard uh, GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. That's yeah, one but... that people talk about. I think I think FANG definitely uh, is a yeah. better acronym. I agree. <laughs> and FANG, you think for, of for you know, a Dracula movie or, yeah. Or, you know, a mangy <laughs> dog or something. Yeah, it, it's certainly easy to say, and it, and it does get some of the point across. I think the thing about Netflix is that I think there's an argument for them to be included as, as, a, as you, we could call the tech giant, include them as a tech giant, but it's a little harder. And so um, the case for including Netflix would be the following. They have really uh, dominated the, the world of streaming services. Now, they're not a monopolist like, say, Google, which is dominant in, you know, which controls the entire search engine market. Obviously, Netflix has competitors like Amazon or, or Hulu, for instance. But the model of streaming service that they really deliver is really powerful and, and very dominant. And I think we tend to think that it's really going to turn Hollywood and the entertainment industry on its head. And so while Netflix might not be as powerful as, say, Amazon today, I think five years down the line, um, things could be very different. And I think the, the clearest areas that we're seeing Netflix dominance play out are in their collection of, of data. Uh, Netflix has a huge advantage in the data collection that they have on their um, on the entertainment that they show on their channel. They they have an that gives them an advantage over other businesses in the sector because they know exactly what people watch. They know, for instance, if you scroll past one movie, look at it, think about it a little bit, but then say, ah, never mind. They have that data. They have that data that says well, last night you thought about watching this Western, but instead you watched a comedy. So that gives them a, a data advantage, which I think is going to only build over time and will give them a, uh, an advantage over long-standing incumbent movie companies. But then also what Netflix is doing along with Amazon is it's really bidding up the price of, of TV and movies. And so Amazon and Netflix, for instance, have showed up at Sundance over the last couple of years, the Sundance uh, movie festival where you see lots of indie independent movies and such. And they've been willing to pay gobs of money, huge amounts of money for, for the movies that are most successful there. And it, and it appears so far that the, the larger entertainment companies, uh, aren't really able to keep up with all the money that Amazon and Netflix are throwing at this industry. And so, so that is the kind of sign of the dominant behavior of Netflix just having more money to spend in the, in the arena than, than other competitors would. So I think that's the argument for including Netflix. But, you know, they are an indebted company. They, they uh, are in debt, and they also just, just aren't quite as big. But I think that could change in five years. I, we, I definitely look at them quite a bit. Um, well, I, and watch I, them I know there's a lot of resentment. No, I know we're not going to be talking too much about them, so let me just get this out here. There is some resentment here in Hollywood at Netflix over, for example, Mudbound. Um, that has mm-hmm. been an Academy Award-nominated film that they only showed in theaters once or twice just to get qualified. You know, and that, that's an understatement, mm-hmm. of course. And 
and when this is something that they could have built an audience through an art house, you know, I've seen the movie. It's a decent movie, and the the, the people who were nominated definitely merit the nominations. Um, but it's at the same time, you know, they, they did it, and so the industry is kind of mad that they just they strictly only used their channel when had they used you know the art houses, you know, they could have built an audience for it, and you know everyone would have benefited. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a good point, and I I haven't seen Mudbound yet. Sounds like a good movie. I'm certainly interested in seeing it. And you know, um, no criticism of you know the actors and directors for that. This is really about about Netflix's control of power. Right. I think that 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 point illustrates a a broader point of of how this business operates. The problem with Netflix is that they're 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 concentrating all of the distribution channels for entertainment, for, for TV and movies, into one place, into one streaming service. And so let's look at, you know, the entertainment industry 30 years ago. You had the big TV networks, you had the big cable networks, you had the big movie studios, you had Blockbuster, you had all of the competitors against Blockbuster, and you had all of the movie theaters themselves. And right. then once the internet came along, you could also buy this stuff online, like, say, on Amazon. Nowadays, those distribution channels are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and everything is going across the same couple of streams, the same distribution channels. Netflix controls one of them. Amazon with Prime controls another. Right. Um, Hulu is, is another. But the point is, is that these distribution channels are getting tighter and tighter, and that could lead to monopoly power. When one company controls critical distribution, they can, they can use that to their own benefit. So I think people are right to be concerned about that issue. And just for the record, the uh, it's been nominated for three Academy Awards: um, Best Supporting Actress, Mary J. Blige, which I, was very deserved; um, Best Original Song, sung by Mary J. Blige, and "Don't Worry, I Will Not Sing It," and um, <laughs> Best Adapted Screenplay by D. Reese. Well, actually, four Academy Awards: D. Reese and Virgil Williams, and um, Best Cinematography, Rachel Morrison. And she is the first woman to be nominated for Best Cinematography. So it actually is a, a significant achievement in that regard. And um, but um, but that's all we have on on Mudbound. And um, but it, it's worth seeing um, anyway. And Mary J. Blige does do a great job, but I don't think she'll win. But let's let me. Um, you're not a lawyer, but I actually do have a background. And I am a lawyer, and I even have a background in antitrust. I actually started at a firm that was founded by uh, a former FTC chairman. And so we're talking about the antitrust laws, and which we've often talked in this on this show about the FTC Act, um, because so much of the FTC does in regulating unfair practices in the Internet. Well, be, a dec- two decades before the FTC Act was the Sherman Antitrust Act. And we always talk about how the FTC Act is very simple, you know, regulating unfair or deceptive acts in interstate commerce. Well, the Sherman Act um, says every contract combination in the form of trust or otherwise or conspiracy in restraint or trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations is declared to be illegal. And then the various iterations of that and subsequently. But it came out of the progressive era when there was the United States had become a national economy and there were concerns about the accumulation of excessive power, um, particularly among the railroads, because that's what connected us as that was the platform that made us a national economy. And um, and so 
you saw that evident here in the Sherman Act, and actually you saw evident in other statutes as we were talking offline here in California. That's what, in the progressive movement here, that's what led them to adopt certain governmental reforms, such as allowing for referendums, where citizens can pass initiatives um, or even recall um, politicians um, directly. And the, the goal behind that was because the entrenched interests of the railroads were too strong in, in Sacramento, the state capital. And um, and ironically, later on, those same measures would be used by industry to um, actually circumvent the legislature um, in quite the opposite manner. But um, so we start with the Sherman Act being a, a tool to address ex- excessive concentrations of economic power. And then as it progresses into the 50s and 60s, you have Robert Bork, you know, the famed uh, almost Supreme Court justice, but who was an antitrust scholar and from the Chicago School, University of Chicago, who believed that we need a more economic analysis, based analysis of what is good or bad in antitrust law. And that, you know, limiting power in efficient markets isn't necessarily the way we should do it. We should do it based on uh, are consumers being harmed or benefited? And basically, it adopted this theory of monopolization that um, it w- if, if 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 a person tries to exercise monopoly power, um, but they're going to do so by raising prices, and if the prices are raised, um, a certain amount will another competitor be able to step in. And if you can raise those prices without another competitor to step in, you have monopoly power. If you don't, then the market will constrain that action and the government need not step in. And so for a number of years, you've seen that trend. Plus, um, early on in antitrust law, there were a, a distinction between per se and rule of reason. A per se rule was something that was always wrong. Um, tying was per se. You couldn't tie usually market power in one area to tie it to gain leverage in another area. Price fixing was another. And over time, you saw some of these, you know, price fixing still is per se, but some of the other areas where there was per se prohibitions become what is known as rule of reason and where a court can has to do an evaluation of whether this is necessarily a bad practice or not. And so you've had this evolution of antitrust law over a hundred years and it seems to have moved away somewhat from the initial, you know, avoiding excessive concentration of power. And I think that's what some of your bosses have been reacting to in this current internet age that um, the new, the new railroads are the online platforms. That's right. I think the connection to the, to the railroads is, is very key. I mean, they uh, concentrated an enormous amount of power uh, over just about everybody in the economic system. You know, I mean, some of the first people arguing for anti-monopoly policy in American history were rural farmers who, who saw themselves uh, being exploited by these large railroad companies that, for instance, would give a big discount to a, a large shipper like uh, Standard Oil. Um, owned by uh, Rockefeller, but would would uh, do their best to exploit smaller producers, smaller farmers. And so I think you're, you're right to make that connection. And I think we, we do see in these new tech companies today a level of power that, that does mirror that of the railroads before. Um, and, and like 
like the the railroads were a, a mechanism of, of distribution of distributing your goods and products the internet serves a similar purpose today. I was talking earlier about Netflix and how they control the, the distribution channels. And uh, that's, that's the same story uh, with, with Facebook, which has really uh, consolidated control over the distribution channel that people, you know, often use for news. You know, it used to be that newspapers control their own distribution, but now you essentially have to depend on Facebook to hope that your your article spreads on Facebook. Google, with its control over the search engine, uh, also controls a mechanism for distributing news and information. So you're right to connect to the railroads. To talk about about Bork and the, the shift in antitrust thinking, it it's really a, a huge, you know, I just want to emphasize that what you're talking about is in the 1980s, Robert Bork and, you know, other Chicago school, as they're called thinkers, came along and said, we need to focus on consumers. And I just want to emphasize how fundamental that change was. As, you know, earlier you read the text of the Sherman Act. Right. And we can, we can all read the text. It's right on Wikipedia. It's pretty simple. So That's where I read it contract. from. <laughs> exactly. Yep, me too. <laughs> um, and it's pretty simple. But the truth is that it's it's not that complicated of a law. It's not like Obamacare, which has, you know, 10,000 pages or however many it was. It's right. a pretty simple law. But that means that how you interpret it is is really is key. That if you decide to interpret it differently. And what, what Bork ushered in was a different logic of interpretation. He said we should interpret these laws differently. And that ushered in this consumer focus. But it also meant something else. It means that because what we have to deal with is interpretation, not the laws themselves, it means all of these same laws can be used to go after concentrated power once again. It, they've been used in the past to break up big companies like Standard Oil. There's no reason they can't be used to break up big companies today. It's just that um, a, you know, this group of Chicago school thinkers uh, encouraged a, a different way to interpret these things. But Interpretation changes. People can say, you know what, we don't think that's right anymore. There's been more and more growing criticism of the Borkian style uh, antitrust, and and we we encourage that criticism. We think that that um that it's inadequate for addressing the concentrations of power that define our modern economy. There's a we're gonna take a break in a minute, but just very briefly, there's a there's a somewhat of an irony here. In that, you know, Robert Bork, who wrote the antitrust paradox, and who, um, in his famous Atlas Van Lines decision, tried to, in, in essence, rewrite antitrust law while he was on the D.C. Circuit, and that was part of the reason why he was rejected as a Supreme Court judge, because he was seen as someone who would be an activist judge. He would, you know, substitute his own thinking. He thought he knew better than Mr. Sherman and um, MP Buddy. And, and, um, and ultimately that, that was used against him. But over time, jurisprudence adopted a lot of his views. And then the other irony now is one of the leading articles in terms of addressing um, why we need to move away from the Borgian approach is coming on the 50 the 50th anniversary of his you know seminal article, and it is a, a piece written by one of your colleagues, um, Lena Khan, on 
calling it Amazon's antitrust paradox, almost you know, kind of jabbing at Bork himself. So it's it's interesting how this has all come full circle. But uh, we're going to kind of take go in a little circle ourselves. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only at WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. What is us? Us is a foundation. Us is the future. Us is a bond. But right now, that bond is fraying. And we need a place that could make it whole. From diabetes prevention to safety around water. The Y fills the gaps. And bridges our divides. But they can't do it without us. Donate today. Because where there's a Y, there's an us. Read by members of the Y. The Y for a better us. Cyberspace. The final frontier. These are the voyages of your new business enterprise. Its ongoing mission to explore strange new domains, to seek out new sites and new monetizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. WebmasterRadio.fm. So logical. You'll go out of your Vulcan mind. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking to Kevin Carty about the growing concern about economic concentration in some of these online platforms. And Kevin, um, I'll let you you pick your foil. Um, Give us an example of what is so wrong about these tech giants. Oh wow! There's a lot to there's a lot to choose from. Um, well, I think a really clear example today is is, is Amazon. Um, Amazon is is one of the one of the biggest companies out there, uh, of course. And the way that Amazon maintains its its monopoly power is is a useful way to kind of understand how uh, monopoly power is used in the economy today. Now, if you if you go on Amazon. The prices they look they look pretty low. Um, if you shop for books, which is you know the first item that Amazon sold, for instance, the prices are going to look pretty good. Maybe it'll be ten dollars for something that your local bookstore will carry for fifteen. The point is is that Amazon caters to the consumer, um, and or at least 
promotes itself as, as doing so. And the, the problem is that if you only look at Amazon's prices, if you only look at the way that it treats its users, the, the people on the other side actually shopping on the platform, you miss whatever, everything that Amazon is doing behind the screen. You miss how it's treating its suppliers, the people who sell to the market, and you miss how it really uses its monopoly power to its own benefit and uh, to, the, to the disadvantage of the people who sell on Amazon's market. So I think that the clearest example of this is, is books. So when Amazon jumped into the book market uh, in the 90s, initially they weren't viewed as that big of a threat. You know, nobody expected that the biggest uh, seller of books in the United States would, would ultimately be one website, uh, which is the case today. Amazon sells something like over 50% of all books, and then it sells an even higher percentage of e-books and an even higher percentage of audio books. But when Amazon came onto the scene, they followed a tried-and-true strategy of, of monopolizing this new industry of selling things online. So what they would do is they would buy books from publishers at, say, $10. But then they would sell those books for 8 See, Amazon wasn't interested in making profit off of these books. It was interested in growing its business. It was interested in growing a monopoly. And we would call this loss-leading you know, where you lead with a low-priced product to, to gain more customers. Right, and but at a certain doing, point, once you have monop- yeah. market power, that's predatory pricing, which is illegal. Exactly. But the thing is, is that what Amazon demonstrated is that uh, traditionally, as, as you think, Ben, you would expect that after a, after a company like Amazon goes in with walk leading, that once they gain market power, once they control the market, that they would raise the prices again. The thing is, is we haven't really seen that with Amazon. Things still look pretty low prices, look like pretty low prices on the site. And so they, it does not appear as predatory pricing. But what Amazon figured out was that they didn't need to raise prices to profit from this big market position. All they needed to do was just keep driving down the cost that they paid authors and publishers for their work. So if Amazon, you know, uh, continues holding this big market, they're going to be able to cater to consumers and keep low prices, but they're going to be able to profit by paying less and less to the publishers and authors who actually make and sell those books. And in that difference, in the, in the point between what it's uh, buying from the publishers and authors and what it's selling for, that's, that's where Amazon makes the money. It doesn't make its monopoly money by uh, raising prices to consumers. It makes its money by underpaying its suppliers. And now publishers were the first to feel this, but Amazon has done this in all sorts of industries. I think we can expect them to do this to other, sec- to other you know, parts of the retail world as well. They're expanding into other areas. But, but that, that, I think, illustrates the, the nature of the, the problem. And it also illustrates why, to understand monopoly in the 21st century, to focus only on prices, to focus only on what consumers are seeing when they go on Amazon or Facebook, is to miss what these companies are actually doing behind the scenes. In the case of Amazon, to the writers of books and the publishers of books who have seen their industry really hammered by Amazon, or or musicians, or by the the new streaming services. The point is that that if you're looking at price and consumers alone, you're really going to be missing the biggest story, which in this case is monopoly. And there's a couple of interesting things that were in the, um, the Amazon Antitrust Paradox article. And one was, and I put a graphic of it in the show notes, of just how diversified or how many tentacles Amazon has. 
um, from Amazon Books to Drive to Echo to Fresh to, you know, Amazon this to that. And um, what was interesting was if you pick an e-commerce channel, a product per se, so Amazon may not necessarily offer that product, but it's a platform for companies to sell that. So people go to the Amazon Marketplace and they sell product X. Amazon sees product X doing well because it has that data. And But Amazon's making money on that product because, one, it's being sold through its platform, so they're making money. And Amazon also may make money on delivery of that product as well because they have their own delivery program. And then on top of that, once Amazon sees a product that's doing well, they may white label it and, or try to create sell it themselves directly and compete at, at a lower price because now they have all this pricing data on their competitor. And um, you're seeing this weird relationship where companies are doing business with Amazon at their peril and even transportation. Um, they got really great deals with um, FedEx and the Postal Service because of the volume they provide. And now they're using that deal to offer transportation services to other e-commerce companies. And, and to, based on either you know using FedEx at that low rate or using their own planes and, sh- and ship and um, trucks. And, and now they're moving into um, maritime. And so it's just a, it's just that how interconnected it all is, and how many different ways Amazon both makes money and competes at the same time. Yeah, it is. It is pretty remarkable. We call this. I mean, you'll be familiar with this term, but we look at it as monopoly leveraging, uh, where you leverage a monopoly in one area to build a monopoly in another. So, Amazon leveraged its dominance in books to create dominance in all of online shopping. Um, and then, you know, with this power over online shopping, it can extend into online, it can extend into package delivery. And then with package delivery, it can extend into um, having things like Amazon lockers, which is a way that you can, you know, have something delivered right. even if you're not at home, right? So the, the point is they can just keep extending it. And that I think is one of the, the big problems with Amazon and their monopoly power. And I think the the point that your colleague made was, um, here's the quote, Amazon controls key critical infrastructure for the internet economies in ways that are difficult for new entrants to replicate or compete against. This gives the company a key advantage over its rivals and they've who have come to depend upon Amazon. And like its willingness to sustain losses, this feature of Amazon power largely confounds contemporary antitrust analysis, which assumes that rational firms seek to drive their rivals out of business. Amazon's game is more sophisticated. By making itself indispensable to e-commerce, Amazon enjoys receiving business from its rivals even as it competes with them. And then goes on to talk about how it uses information against them. Um, now, Tying in the antitrust law usually means where you require, you bundle something in a way that you use your market power to to force someone to buy something they wouldn't buy. It, it doesn't sound like Amazon's doing that, though. They're using just the, their leverage, their advantage to do it. 
yeah, it, it gets it gets a little a little complicated trying to decide. Okay, what what exactly is the tactic that that Amazon is using? But I think I think Lena Khan, who's my colleague who who wrote the paper you're quoting from, I think she, she's right to focus on on the way in which others are made to be dependent on Amazon. I, I think that's really the fundamental nut of, of what they're doing is that if you're a company nowadays that wants to sell things online, if you try to sell anywhere but Amazon, you just don't really have a lot of options and chances are you might get steamrolled because Amazon could just come into your sector and, and, and squash you. And so that means that Com- let's say an independent company. I'm just I'm just picking a company at random here. I'm not you know saying anything. Right. Let's say a company like Nike wants to sell things online because more is moving online. Right. Well, you know, in a what's what the thing is is that Nike will have a huge incentive to move through Amazon because they're so big and because Amazon has such good um, shipping infrastructure because Amazon is easy to use. People know it. People are familiar with it. But that just means that Amazon has more power because now one of the biggest shoe brands in the world has to sell through its system. Right. Um, and then, of course, like you said, Amazon gets all the pricing data, all the consumer data. The truth is, is that, that, you know, people are made to depend on Amazon. And when you have everybody in an economy or everybody in a piece of the economy all dependent upon one, uh, one company, uh, then you get a railroad problem, like you were talking earlier about, about railroads. When one company controls an essential piece of the economy, when one company controls something that everyone else has to use, that company just has a lot more concentrated power than they ought to, and they can use that to their own advantage. And that's that's what we've seen Amazon do. So when I, when I, when I was in practice in at a big earning trust firm, the key you, you want to launch the case based on how you define the market, and mm-hmm. so we've talked about Amazon's dominance in the e-commerce platform. But is that the market? Um, For example, um, I've seen analysis that show that even though Amazon may have close to half of all, have its hands in class to nearly half of all e-commerce transactions, it really accounts for only 2% of retail activity if you include offline transactions. That yeah, doesn't sound it, it, as 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 intimidating as mm-hmm. the well. Uh, sorry. <laughs> well, no, things no. Get, uh, things get things get a little a little a little a little complicated. Like I think I think a, another example is, is is Walmart. So if we think about Walmart for a second, I, th- I think this might be helpful. Okay. If we, if we think about about Walmart, which you know before Amazon was uh, was considered a big boogeyman among among some who were critical of concentrated corporate power, Walmart. If you look at the national market for retail stores that Walmart competes in, Walmart probably doesn't represent some huge portion of that market. You know, there are lots of other grocery stores, lots of other clothing stores, right? But if you look at a particular community it looks to be a lot more dominant. You know, if you look like a t- at a town that only has, say, one grocery store and a Walmart, then Walmart has, has a lot more control. So the point right. is, is that looking at national market share figures make things a little more, more complicated and, and kind of obscure how, how this dominance works in practice at the local level or in, um, you know, particular markets. So, for instance, while, while Amazon might not have uh, more than say uh, 
a certain percentage of the broader share, they, they are dominant in books, right? You know, they, they certainly are dominant in books. But right. there's no reason that a couple of years down the line, they might not be dominant in, in something else as well. So we should, you know, be careful when we, when we think about that. One step that I find useful about Amazon, just to, you know, last thing I'll say on this is that in the holiday season in December 2017, Amazon sold 89% of all online retail shop, like 89% of all e-commerce shopping among the largest e-commerce sellers. I'm not talking about your aunt who sells, you know, something on, on Facebook, for instance, but, but the big sellers, Walmart, Best Buy, whatever. Amazon sold 89% of all e-commerce transactions in the holiday period, which is, of course, the, the biggest part of the retail thing. Now, they might not have a, a full monopoly, but that is, that is dominance. That is a lot of power right there. Um, even if it's not a full 100% monopoly on the whole thing, it still is a lot of concentrated power, and that also concern us. And yeah, and it's it, do they have the ability to raise prices? And that's one of the analysis. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, your point kind of illustrated the very kind of statement I made. You know, your case is one one or lost on how you define the market, and um, mm-hmm. and so if you define it as online or if you define it by one way, they're very dominant indeed and intimidating. And if you define it as I mean, just general U.S. commerce. And, and not so much. Um, there's an interesting analysis that's done. And are you familiar with Scott Galloway, uh, the NYU professor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, uh, we, we speak with him sometimes. He's cool. He's very, yeah, he's very animated. He's written a lot about this. He's, he's one of the um, people you see frequently out there talking about it. And he's been doing a presentation recently, um, and I included in the uh, the the reader, um, uh, a YouTube link, a video of a, a recent presentation he did uh, last week. And it, it's kind of the same variation what he's been doing the last six weeks. But there was a point where Google and Facebook uh, were brought before the Senate Intelligence Committee. And Senator Burr, the chairman of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, who, a side note, was one of the authors of the Can Spam Act. Um, <laughs> and he he urges Google and Facebook to, to work with um, them, saying that you're our first line of defense against this encroachment, you know, from Soviet, excuse me, Russian and, and other, counter, you know, other intelligence agencies trying to um, pollute our, our political space and influence our elections. And he just, Galloway just kind of scratches his head and says, wait a minute, uh, the United States Congress is telling Google and Facebook you're our first line of defense? They're that powerful? He says, first, you know, he said, but more or less, F that, you know, I'd rather have the Marines. And then, but it tells you that how powerful they, they, these groups have become. But is that an antitrust it- powerful? Or is that just what is that? It's a good question. It's a good question. I, I would I would say that it that it, it it is somewhat an antitrust issue. But whether whether it is primarily an antitrust issue or something else is something that, that people disagree with. But the reason that, that I see that as an issue of antitrust or anti monopoly um, is that is that historically as the US has, has applied antitrust law, and I'm not talking about in the last forty years or so 
since sure. you know Robert Bork changed things. But but further back, antitrust law had more um, political content. People saying that the reason that, like for instance, one reason to to keep industry not too concentrated is to ensure that your industrial base during a war is not too dependent upon one company. If all of the bullets in a country are made by one company and that company has a problem, a plant shut down, well, that's a, that's a big problem for the war effort. So rather, you would prefer to have a, a deconcentrated industry. You would want to have 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 different companies making that. And so I would consider that an antitrust concern. Um, but it gets to the point that, that other issues touch on antitrust. There's a, there's a broad list of reasons that we want effective antitrust law. And, and one is that the more concentrated business is, the more susceptible it is to outside attack or, or, or exploitation of that network. Whether we're talking about a one company making bullets, for instance, that's going to be susceptible to some sort of shock or attack, or if we're just talking about a, an information distribution system like Google, because everybody uses one company, say Google, for the search engine, that means that everybody is going across one channel. That's every single person in the country going across one uh, little railroad. And that means that if you are, say, uh, somebody trying to spread fake news or spread disinformation, all you have to do is, is tap into that one channel and you've hit everybody. Now, if it's a more deconcentrated media environment, if people were, or were getting their news from a bunch of local papers and national papers and TV and radio and all of these different things, we would be less concerned because if you compromise one distribution channel, you wouldn't compromise everyone's distribution channel. You would just compromise, you know, one, one little slice. And so, yeah, I, I do see that as, as an antitrust concern. But the, the point is things, things, things do get complicated once you talk about issues as, as challenging as, you know, meeting new threats from, you know, our global counterparts. So we're going to take a short break. We come back. We'll talk more about this with Kevin. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. All of your favorite webmasterradio.fm programs on air and on demand 24-7. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Add some podcasts to your playlist as part of a better profit margin. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, 
You can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Start your search engine and put your servers into overdrive. It's webmasterradio.fm steering you into the winner's circle. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and once again, our our information on our guests in this show is at our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. Our upcoming show is, our next show on February 7th, is David Gottlieb. He's uh, author of The Gifted Generation, and he's uh, one of our last interviews from the Miami Book Fair. And uh, very interesting to you. And the week after that, we're going to have David Talbot from Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society on their report on community-owned fiber networks and how they're actually value leaders when compared to normal, regular commercial ISPs. But um, we're talking with Kevin here, um, Kevin Carney, the Open Markets Institute. And we've been talking about the, the growing antitrust interest in addressing some of these large platforms, Amazon, Google, Facebook. And uh, there is the question of any, there's a policy issue and a, a theory issue with antitrust law is that um, it stifles innovation. And earlier we had on another Miami Book Fair author um, who wrote the book um, Move Fast and Break Things. Um, His name is Jonathan Taplin. And his view was that he highlighted how historically when you address monopolies, when you did the the Ma Bells, when you broke them up, um, you had all these innovations that resulted from breaking them up and the spinoffs and you know the the uh, patents that now became available, and how when they um, the Clinton administration reined in Microsoft, that allowed uh, new internet companies to grow. That you wouldn't have Google or Facebook had Microsoft not been reined in, and they're basically saying that what's happening now is you're losing innovation because of these giants, and so there's some calls to break them up or somehow limit their ability, make some of some of their technology uh, a utility, or make them spin off some of their patents and so where do you come down on that kevin on terms of uh on terms of exactly what we should do with these companies yeah well the good news is about besides send dividend checks to your address (laughs) (laughs) well you know i want to stay unbiased so they can keep the checks but (laughs) the uh the the good news about about antitrust is that we have a long history in the U.S. of using antitrust and anti- antitrust law and anti-monopoly policy to go after concentrated uh, economic power. So we've got lots of examples here. So we don't have to come up with the ideas out of whole cloth today. We can you, we can use examples from the past to guide our thinking. And I think you mentioned Ma Bell and the effect of the breakup of, of that company and, and the effect of unleashing that company's patents on innovation. And I think that, that AT&T is, is actually a really good example of what you can do with a, a big uh, information or tech 
company because that's essentially what AT&T was. It was the it was the Google of its day. If we go back to the early 1900s, they had helped extend the telephone to all corners of the country and were totally dominant. You know, they and they were a a new, exciting, technologically advanced company. The telephone was was new technology. And so I think that's an example I, I go back to a lot. And so if we think of what the U.S. government did to AT&T, in 1913, the, uh, the government was considering, this was the, the new administration of Woodrow Wilson, who'd just been elected, was considering suing to break up AT&T. But often what the government will do is they'll say, we're considering uh, using antitrust action to using antitrust law to go after you. But instead of that, you could just enter into a consent decree with the U.S. government to defer antitrust action as long as you do some sort of thing. So at the time that the government reached an agreement with AT&T by which the company would stop acquiring independent telephone companies, it would freely connect its long-distance network to independent telephone companies, it would sell off Western Union, which was the, the really powerful telegraph firm that AT&T owned, and it would, it would generally agree to be a... A, a neutral network, a common carrier that wouldn't discriminate against among different messages. And that agreement really underwrote um, the, the continued operation of the telephone market in the U.S. Now, AT&T was still dominant, but it was stopped from doing the worst things that it, it had done. It was, stopped, it was stopped from crushing independent telephones. It was stopped from taking advantage of its monopoly power to raise prices. And so I, I think that that is a, a good model. So how would we apply that? To companies like Google. And, right. you know, this is stuff we're all still thinking about. I think one thing that you'd want to do is you'd want to separate some of Google's businesses off of other parts of its business. Google obviously is, is dominant in search, but Google also has a business as YouTube, which, you know, is the biggest video uh, streaming service. Well, it's also uh, it the also second or third largest search platform. Yeah. Yes, of course. It's, I mean, YouTube is, is enormous. But the point is, is Google is active in all these businesses, but it uses its, its monopoly in, in search and its data from search to extend into all of these businesses. So I think the first thing you would do, just as you had AT&T sell off Western Union, is you would make Google divest of some of its pieces. There's no reason that this one company has to control the world's biggest search engine and the world's biggest video platform. So you could make sure it got, a, got rid of that. Another thing is you could create new rules ensuring neutrality on, on Google's platform. Right now, the search engine is so dominant. I mean, something like 90% of all computers worldwide or something like that uses Google. I mean, the numbers are really astonishing. In the U.S., 94% of all mobile searches go through a Google search engine. That's a number I'm more confident of, by the way. Um, and so they really have all of this power, but they shouldn't be allowed to, to, to dictate what comes across these search engines all on their own because it is just so powerful. So you could create a, a set of rules to ensure that Google was, was neutral in how it ranked different things. So the, the point is, is non-discrimination. They wouldn't be able to um, lower something down in the search engine or, or ignore certain things entirely unless it was done fairly. So that, that's another thing is principles of fairness and non-discrimination. Kind of like net neutrality, which we use for the internet service providers, right. apply similar ideas, not identical to, to some of these companies. Those are the sort of things we're thinking about, but the, there's a lot that needs to be done. These are, these are huge companies that do a lot of different things and a lot of different businesses. 
I don't think that there's any silver bullet. I think there's a ton of good policy ideas. And uh, as, you know, people thinking about this, we ought to, to think broadly and say, why not this? Why not that? There, there's all sorts of choices that we can take here. Well, we only have uh, a couple of choices left. We're, we're down to our final two minutes. Is there anything uh, you want to let us know about what you're coming what you guys are working on? Um, anything coming up, any presentations or articles or? Yeah. So I'm going to be, I have a piece uh, about um, confronting the power of big tech that uh, should come out uh, this Sunday um, in the, in the New York post um, that, I think is, is when it's going to end up being published. Um, and then we're also, I'm also doing some research on communications and media and how we can, um, you know, better address our current uh, media moment in which uh, Google and Facebook really control a lot of the news. And then, um, and so keep an eye out for, for work on that. Sure. Because send it our way. We're working on. And send it our way and uh, we'll definitely announce it. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. And you know, this is such a big topic. It's hard to really cut, get too deep into the weeds of it in, in, a, in a, an hour alone. But I want to thank you for at least you know, giving us our initial taste of this. And of course, you know, we're, um, this is one side of the story. You know, there are some other arguments. And so we don't want to necessarily say that you know, this one, one side is right. But it, it does, definitely there's some arg- it's an argument that needs to be discussed. We need to be having this discussion at least. And because it's in the, these are a very critical part of our, tech, of our economy. So thank you again. I want to thank our producer, Brasco. Uh, as always, for helping us and put this together today. And um, check us out at the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. And uh, as always, check out our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And you can find uh, our guest's uh, website and his Twitter, which is Politicardi. And um, so we will be checking you out there. So come join us next week. And most importantly, above all else, go Patriots. Bring home another Super Bowl. And we will see you then. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.